We're going slowly through the book of Romans, and last week we started in that, that book. Uh, Tim opened it and gave an, a, an overview, and this week we're going to continue. I'm going to preach the part of chapter 1 that Tim didn't preach on, the last half, verses 18 through 32. And I want to say about this book that the book that we're looking at in, in this series is probably the most life-changing, most history-shaping of any book in the Bible. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Martin Luther before. It's not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther. Uh, so so unlike, unlike uh, the guy from the 20th century, this guy lived a couple centuries back. He was a German monk who had been taught that in order to be saved, you have to live a righteous life. And because of that, Martin Luther hated God. He hated God because he hated the fact that God demanded of him a standard that he couldn't keep. And so every time he tried to keep that standard and he failed, he, he, he hated himself and he hated God. And the storm center of Martin Luther's struggle was the book of Romans. He, he read in the book of Romans that there was a phrase, the righteousness of God. That's Romans chapter 1. And he thought that that phrase meant that that's the justice of God. Like that's the revelation of God's punishment against sin. But Luther knew that he wasn't good enough. He said, you know, man, if ever there was a monk who would have been saved by his monkery, it would have been me. I did all of the things that, that, that you think you might do in order to be saved. You know, he woke up every day at two in the morning to start his, his day of, of, of prayer and worship. He took a vow of poverty. He took a vow of chastity. He went to confession all the time. He, he wrote at one point that I choose 21 saints and I pray to, th- to three of them every day. I celebrate Mass. He said, I almost fasted myself to death because again and again he wouldn't go with he would go without food and without water. I mean, this guy did it all. And then one day he read the book of Romans afresh. And he comes to the book of Romans and he reads that phrase, the righteousness of God again, and he realizes that what that is really talking about is the righteousness that God gives us by mercy and by grace to make us right with him. And when he realized that, He said, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors of paradise. And that discovery led to the greatest revival in all of Christian history, the Reformation. The book of Romans was what triggered that. Or another guy that Martin Luther was inspired by was a guy named Augustine. And Augustine was was a guy who for the first 31 years of his life lived his life in bondage to sex. He was a sexual addict. And one day, after years and years and years and years of struggling with this, in fact, if you, want, if you want sort of like a snapshot of what his struggle was, I mean, he knew that this was killing him. He knew that this was destroying him, but yet he, he just couldn't get rid of it. At one point, he prayed, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. It was destroying him, and he knew it. And one day, he was out in a garden, and, and here's what he wrote. He said, The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains, and suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl. Pick up and read. Pick up and read. I took the book of the apostle, in other words, the book of Romans, and I opened it and in silence read the first passage on which my eye lie. Not in riots or drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and its lusts. It's Romans chapter 13. And Augustine wrote that at once with the words of that sentence, it was as if a light of relief from anxiety flooded into my heart. 
and he was free. And he went on to become one of the greatest theologians in all of Christian history whose theology guided the church through the dark ages. This book is life-changing and history-shaping. And it's been more responsible than any other book in the Bible for sparking revival. And the reason for that is that the book of Romans is about the gospel. I mean, of all the books in the Bible, there's probably no book that is more comprehensive in explaining the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done. And the gospel changes lives. The gospel is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. And, And that's why we're looking at this book. And so if you're here and you know that your heart is dead and that you need personal revival in your life, this book can do it. Or maybe the better way to put that is that God through this book can do it. The gospel through this book can do it because the gospel changes lives. And so what we're going to do tonight is actually dive into what the gospel is. Tim gave the overview, and this week we're actually going to actually go in and go, go deep and look at it. And the gospel, you might know that the word gospel just means good news. What we're going to find out tonight is that in order for the gospel to be good news, it has to actually start out as bad news. This first section of this book is the bad news section of the book. You know, Paul has started out by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That was what Tim looked at last week. That's verse 16. But the question then is, why does everyone need saving? Why does everyone need saving? And the answer that Paul's going to give and what we're going to look at is that the whole world is under sin. The whole world is under sin. In the 21st century, we look at our lives and think that the biggest problem that we have is that we are in search of a way to be happy. But for the writers of the Bible back in their day, the biggest problem was not, how do I be happy? The biggest problem is, how can I be made right with God? How can I be made right with God? And the reason that that was, that was the biggest need was because back then people had a deeper grasp of what Paul is going to write about here, which is that all of humanity is under sin and in desperate need of saving. And so what I want to do, even, even before we read this passage, is I want to give just like a really high-flying overview of this section that we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks about the problem of sin. If you want to grasp what this section is all about, let me just give you a couple of pointers that will help you as you go back through and read it yourself. So from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is talking about the problem of sin. And if you want to kind of get into this, imagine that you're sitting in a courtroom and God is the judge and humanity is the one that's on trial. And Paul, who wrote this book, is essentially playing God's prosecuting attorney. He's the prosecutor. He's the one who's trying to make the case that all humanity is under sin all humanity is in need of a Savior. And the claim that all people need the gospel, he supports by doing what any good prosecuting attorney would do, and that's by calling a couple of witnesses to the stand. And in this this section, these couple of chapters, he's going to call four witnesses to the stand in order to testify that all humanity is without excuse. All humanity is in need of the gospel. And I'm going to give those to you right now so that way you can go back and look at these yourself. The first witness is in chapter 1. It's the witness of creation. He says that all human beings, no matter where you were born, no matter where you live, all human beings can look at the created world and realize there must be something or someone behind this, a creator. 
So there's the witness of creation. In chapter 2, verse 1, he calls a second witness to the stand, which is the witness of condemnation. And he says, you know, man, you don't have any excuse when you condemn someone else for something bad that they've done. Because the very measure that you use to measure out against someone else is the same measure that God's going to apply to you. You're guilty of the very things that you condemn and other people. It's like when you cut someone off while you're driving, just after some, you know, or someone cuts you off while, while you're driving, you get really mad at them, and you maybe start to swear at them under your breath. You say, man, you know, you shouldn't do that. But then, you know, a couple of days go by, you do the same thing to someone else. <laughs> and God is a just God. You know, God is not going to judge someone who's never heard of the Bible or never heard of Jesus on the basis of God or on the basis of those things. But he's going to say, you have your own moral standards, don't you? And you condemn other people on the basis of those standards. Do you keep your own standards? And the answer to that question for every single human being is no. So there's the witness of creation. There's the witness of condemnation. In chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, there's the witness of conscience. Where the point there is that every single human being has a conscience, which is like a moral compass that God has put into every single human heart so that we know when we're stepping over a line we shouldn't step across. And then finally, there's a fourth witness, the witness of the commandments. And he says that there are some people, in this case he's talking about the Jews, who had extra information. You know, these first three witnesses, creation, condemnations, conscience, those all apply to what you might, you know, you might call the man without the Bible, the man without, like, extra special revelation. And those, those are accessible to everybody. But then there's the Jewish people. And God gave them his word, and he gave them the law, and he gave them his commandments in order that they would have extra information about who God was, what he required. And they were going around boasting and saying, well, you know, we're better than all of those Gentiles because we have this book of the law. And Paul says, well, you guys, you don't get it. It's not simply that you, that you have the law. You have to obey the law if you're going to be able to stand before God. And the point is, none of them did. So the first three witnesses, creation, condemnation, conscience, apply to, 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 you can say, the man without the Bible. But then for those with sort of the extra information, the Jewish people, there's this other one, the witness of the commandments. And so in chapter 3, Paul, like any good attorney, he sums up his case. He cites some previous court precedent, so to speak. He goes to the Old Testament, and he quotes all of these verses. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands, none who seeks after God. He basically is quoting all of these things in the Old Testament to say, this is what the Bible has always said, that there is no one who can save themselves. That all of us, without God breaking into the world in the person of Jesus, all of us would be lost and doomed. And then he wraps up his case. In chapter 3, verse 20, he says, every mouth is silenced. In other words, you know, on the, on the day of judgment, no one will be able to come to God and say, God, I didn't have enough information. Or God, I have an excuse. I have some reason that your justice is wrong. He says, every mouth will be silenced. And if that's where the book ended, then we would all be in a really sorry state. But the book doesn't end there. The very next section, which we'll get to in chapter 3, verse 21, it's as though the courtroom doors burst open and in runs Jesus and he says, Your Honor, I have another testimony to bring before the jury. And he begins to speak about his work on the cross, about a righteousness from God that was revealed not by law, not by works, but by what Jesus did on the cross received by faith. And we're going to get there soon. 
but for tonight, we're, we're, we're still looking at this first section. Um, and this first section is heavy. I mean, this is probably not... Um, you know, this is probably not anyone's favorite part of the Bible because there's probably no passage that's more straight up about the problem with the human heart, the problem of sin. But this is, we need to grasp this. Without grasping the bad news, it's impossible to grasp the good news. So I'm going to recite this passage and then I'm going to look a little bit more closely at it. Let me pray for us as we do. Lord, would you open up our eyes um, to what our state would be without you? Um, Would you help us to be thankful for what you've done in Jesus on the cross? And Father, to welcome him um, into our hearts in a deeper way than uh, maybe we have before. In his name, amen. So if you have a Bible, look at uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Chapter 1, 18 through 32 which says, For the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, or since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like birds and mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Because of this, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to, uh, someone help me out here, vile passions. Oh, you're reading in a different version than I am. Shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also ex- abandoned natural relations and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And this is the part where if you were all Presbyterian, you'd all say, thanks be to God. But I'm not Presbyterian, so you don't have to do that. (laughs) The passage that we just read, um, you can tell is heavy. And in fact, um, there's a number of sort of what you might call hot potatoes in this passage, just some some really challenging things, especially for our culture right now, that are sort of hard to know how to handle. Um, Probably the biggest one in here is what it says about homosexuality. And in fact, uh, this is something that is such a a significant issue uh, personally and culturally that instead of actually really looking at it this week, I'm going to take a week next week and we're just going to hit it head on just so we can actually address it and give it due justice. Uh, But just know that uh, there are a number of places in Romans, this is one of them, where there's just some really, really challenging things that are said in this book. 
But this passage ultimately, I mean, don't get lost in the, don't get lost in the weeds. What the passage is really about is it's sort of the answer to a question. And the answer to the question is, does Jesus actually matter? I mean, does Christianity actually matter? Is there any reason that we're actually all here tonight? I mean, you know, I know people, I mean, maybe you do too, who have just paid a tremendous cost to follow Christ. Um, you know, one of my uh, best friends in college was a missionary kid, which means that he grew up in another country, in another culture. His parents moved to another country, another culture, and made an enormous sacrifice because they believed that, that Jesus was worth spreading among people who don't know him. But, is it, but is, it, is it an illusion? I mean, were they just wasting their lives? Or is there something actually about Jesus that makes him, that, 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 that makes him worth it? And this passage answers that question by saying yes. Because if it were not for Jesus, according to this passage, all humanity would be under the wrath of God. And that's what verse 18 says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. What I want to do tonight is I want to just show you three things about uh, the, 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 this, this verse. This verse is kind of the topic sentence for this whole section. The first thing is why God shows his wrath. The second thing is how God shows his wrath. And then the final thing is when God shows his wrath. Okay, so how, wh- uh, why, how, and when. Why, how, and when. Now, first of all, the word wrath of God. You know, when, when you think about the word wrath, you know, what I oftentimes think of is, is like sort of a, a sudden, violent reaction of anger to something. But is that the way that God's wrath works? Now, it is true that wrath does mean anger, but is it true that God is kind of like this, you know, almost like this drunken guy on a couch, and when he kind of gets mad, he just sort of awakes from his drunken stupor and kind of beats on people and kicks people around? No. The wrath of God is God's set determined opposition to sin. The wrath of God is his set determined opposition to, to sin. And the, the, the basic idea of this verse is that God is wrathful or God is angry because humanity has turned away from him. And the way that, that the humanity has turned away from him and, and, and what defines this whole passage is given in the last little words of this verse. It says that the reason for God's anger is that humanity suppresses the truth. Now, what that means is you can't, you can't suppress something you don't have. You know, like if I'm really hungry, you know, and I really want to go through like the McDonald's drive-thru and get a milkshake. You know, like you, you, you know, I, I can't suppress my hunger and sort of just drive on and go somewhere else. You know, I can't suppress hunger if I'm not actually hungry to begin with. And so when Paul says that, that we suppress the truth, what that means is that deep down, and in kind of like in an intuitive way, the claim is that all of humanity knows that there's a God, and we suppress it. And you know who knows this is not just people like Paul or Christians. <laughs> Atheists know this. Let me read you a quote from a guy named Thomas Nagel. He's a famous atheist philosopher. So in other words, he's a, he's a, he's a hotshot. But listen to what he says. He says, I want atheism to be true and made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. How about that? It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. It's a pretty honest assessment. 
I mean, what he's saying is that his atheism is not the result of rational, reasoned decision-making. That his, his atheism is, result, basically, is, is the result, basically, of a gag reflex against God. That I don't want there to be a God, and so therefore I'm going to live my life as though there isn't. In fact, I'm actually going to make a career being a philosopher who says stuff about that. But what Paul says is that deep down in every human heart is the knowledge of God. In fact, he says in verse 21, he says, although they knew God. So he says that deep down, it's there, whether we, whether we admit it or not. And that all of us suppress that knowledge that we already have. And, 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 and you could say that it really is like an anti-God bias. And the reason that I say it's a bias is because, you know, if you think about it, no one is neutral on this. Like, no one is neutral on the question of God because if there's a God, if there's, if, if there's the kind of God, not just like a liberal God who says, oh, you know, you know, a God of love, live however you want, and not just a conservative God who says, well, if you, you really want to be one of God's favorites, then you need to you know, do all the right things and work really, really hard, and then, then you'll be one of the in crowd. You, know, you can buy off a God like that. You can obey all the rules. You can do all the religious things in order for that God to owe you. But the God of the Bible is not like that because he can't be controlled. You can't buy off God. He's the only person in the whole Bible who actually has a spine. And if that kind of God is real, then that means that we're not in charge of our lives. We're dependent. We're dependent on God for every single breath that we take. And we hate that. The human heart is wired to hate that. Because we want to be our own gods. We want to sit on the throne of our own lives. We want to be independent. And we sure as heck don't want to worship God. You know, man, there, there are things in your heart that you are capable of that you just have no idea you're even capable of. I mean, have you ever had times like that where like you've just realized, how on earth did I just think that thought or feel that feeling or do that thing? To, to actually be confronted with the true nature of your own heart is enough to totally shatter any kind of self-righteousness that you have where you say to yourself, man, I'm a good person because of this, 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 or this. Apart from Jesus, no one is good. And so the first reason that Paul gives in this passage for why God shows his wrath, the reason for God's anger, is because God revealed himself and we took it and suppressed it. First reason is that we suppressed God's truth. And it leads us to a second reason, which is that we've not only suppressed God's truth, we've also ignored God's revelation. And that's verses 19 and 20. And in verses 19 and 20, Paul actually gives some proof of how we suppressed God's truth. He says, well, you know, let me support this claim. And he says that the way that that claim is supported is by creation. So verse 19, we suppress the truth since what may be known about God is plain, because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. And he says that, you know, basic point, everyone can look at creation and they, and they can discern from that that there's a God. And actually, from, from, the, from the very beginnings of human knowledge, this has, been, this has been something that people have known. Religious people and non-religious people. So, for example, Aristotle, the famous philosopher, I mean, you might know that one of his most famous ideas was the idea that there's an unmoved mover. And he was simply doing what Paul's describing. He said, well, you know, look, there's, you know, there, 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 there's, a, there's like a, a, a chain of causation. Like when I 
do something, there's a cause for me doing it, and then that causes something else. And, you know, you can always kind of work your way back. And Paul says, well, you know, or Aristotle says, well, you know, there's a world here. There must have been a cause for that, and then there must have been a cause for that, and a cause for that, and a cause for that. He says, well, you know, eventually you're, 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 you have to work your way back to something that triggered the whole thing off. An unmoved mover is what he called it. And so even Aristotle, you know, not, he lived before Jesus. He's not, he's, not a, he's not a Christian. He doesn't have the knowledge of the true God. Even Aristotle looks at creation, and he concludes what Paul says. He says, there's got to be something. There's got to be something. And yet we've ignored it. We've suppressed the truth that we have that's been revealed in creation. We've ignored it. And then the third reason for God's wrath, for God's anger, is given in the next couple of verses. Verses 21 through 23. And let me just read these again. It says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, or their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This really gets to the heart of the matter because what Paul says here is that when you stop worshiping God, you don't stop worshiping. You simply worship something else. This is what he means when he says that we've exchanged God's glory for images made to look like all these things. When you try to stop worshiping God, you can never be free of worshiping something else. And, and, and the biblical word for the other things that we worship is idolatry. And idolatry is more than simply little statues. You know, I've actually been in parts of the world where people really do worship statues. But in our kind of modern Western world, you know, the things that we worship aren't necessarily, you know, statues of the Buddha or something like that. Instead, the things that we worship are far more subtle because they're, they're much, much harder to see. There are all kinds of, of idols that are, that are out there in, in the world that we live in. So, for example, there can be relationship idolatry. You know, like a relationship idolatry might look like, like putting all of your worth and all of your identity in a boyfriend or a girlfriend or getting married or being liked by other people. There can be success idolatry. You know, your idol might be having money. You know, money is really just another word for self-esteem currency. <laughs> it could be getting a job. It could be getting a degree or a certain kind of degree. It could be, like, getting in shape and having the perfect body. It could be having a good physique. All, you know, there's success idolatry. And there's even another kind of idolatry. I mean, you might have heard of, you know, oh, money's an idol or sex is an idol or marriage is an idol. You know, the kinds of things that we talk about a lot. But, but did you know that church can be an idol? Obeying God's commandments can be an idol. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, I mean, when you say, I obey God's commandments, like I do all the right things, I, you know, I, I come to church, I come to thrive, I, I, I do all the things I'm supposed to do. What you're really saying is that, that, that you know, I obey the commandments and I'm a good person, therefore, that, that really I am saved by my own obedience. I'm saved because I do all the right things and I check off all the boxes and I don't need Jesus to rescue me. So even religious things can be an idol. <laughs> it all goes back to what the motivation of the heart is. Martin Luther said that the thing that your heart is truly resting in, that is really your God. And the thing about exchanging your worship for, for, from one thing to another is that, that all of the things that we try to find our, our identity and all the things that we come to to worship, they're not bad things. I mean, marriage, success, career, all that stuff that's not inherently bad. 
But the problem with idols is that they never, ever satisfy. I mean, did you know that when the recession in 2008 hit, that there are a whole bunch of very wealthy business executives that killed themselves? And why did that happen? It was because when their money was gone, they had nothing left. All of their identity, all of their worth, all of their hope had been put into something that could never deliver. And so the first part of this passage is that God is angry, and he's angry because of the, these three reasons, that we suppress God's truth, we ignore his revelation, and we've exchanged his glory for worthless things that will leave us crushed, destroyed, and broken. It's probably not the message you came here to hear, <laughs> that you wanted to hear tonight. But now for the second thing. Uh, so, you know, that's sort of why God shows his wrath. But the, 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 what's even more interesting in this passage is, is the way that God does it. How does God show his wrath? And that's verses 24 to 32. You know, is God's response to all of this, um, you know, all of our rebellion and all of our sin, is it simply to force our eyes open, you know, to kind of force truth down our noses or something like that? Um, you know, does he take all of our idols and he kind of throws them into a furnace and destroys them and says, ah, oh, you know, now you can really come back to worshiping me? No. No. What this passage says is that God's judgment against all of our wickedness and all of our rebellion is to give us exactly what we want. Did you know that the scariest thing that God can do is to fulfill all of your wildest dreams? Notice that in this passage, three times, 24, 26, and 28, Paul uses the phrase, God gave them over. And another way you could say that is that, you know, basically God abandoned them to what they wanted. God gave them the idols that they were seeking. And, and, and if you think about that, you know, if you didn't realize sort of the context of this, you might think, wow, like, this is actually like an amazing, this is like a passage that's all about like how good God is and all about his grace. I mean, this can't be a passage about the wrath of God. I mean, don't you realize that there are certain preachers who preach what's called the prosperity gospel? This is what they're all about. The the real point of, about Christianity is, is, is simply that God is just basically one big cosmic vending machine who gives you all the things that you want. But the problem with that is that not only does it make you fall in love with prosperity rather than falling in love with Jesus, but prosperity can never satisfy. No kind of idol can ever satisfy. And, and think about this. If you actually get what you truly idolize, who wins? Is it you or is it the idol? And you know, the perfect illustration of this is, uh, this is from Lord of the Rings. Remember Gollum? Gollum is the perfect illustration of what biblical idolatry is like. Seriously. Because if you, if you know, I'm sure many of you have seen the movies. Gollum's idol is the ring. <laughs> His whole existence is all about getting the ring. And it literally is an all-consuming passion. Like it consumes him from the inside out. And you can, just like with the ring, you can never control an idol. The idol is always what controls you. And the worst thing that can ever happen for you is to actually get it. And this is exactly what happens to him. You know, if you remember the, that last scene in Return of the King, the very moment when he finally like clutches onto the ring is the moment where it actually leads to his own destruction. This is what sin does. It literally tears you apart from the inside out. You know, here, here's a more modern day example. So someone writing about idolatry says this. He says, you know, imagine you got a guy who worships his career. That's his idol. He serves it as what will make him a somebody. It drives him. It dominates his life, and everything else is fitting around it. And what that means is that the worst thing that can happen to him is a promotion. Isn't that crazy? 
the worst thing that can happen to him is a promotion. Because what that does is it takes a guy who already is worshiping his career and it allows him to think that, that, that it's actually satisfying him. And it causes all the other things in his life to just shatter and burn. His marriage, his family, everything else that is being sacrificed on the altar of career. Or, you know, let's say that the idol in your life, the thing that you worship is having a significant other. You know, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It's the thing that controls you. It affects everything about how you behave around other people. You want it so badly that it leads you to make all kinds of choices that you'll later regret. And let me ask you a common sense question. If that's the state of your heart, are you in a position to be in a relationship? The answer is probably not. Because, you know, maybe you've been there before where, like, you know, if you, you, you try to dive into a relationship and you're kind of worshiping it as the thing that you put all of your hope in, how's that relationship going to go? It's not going to go very well. You're going to probably put, like, all of your identity in that other person. The other person's going to be crushed by that. They can never, ever live up to that. The worst thing that can happen to you is you can, you can fall in love. There's a famous British playwright, a guy named Oscar Wilde, no Christian at all. And, he's, and, he, and he, he understood the, the, what, the insight that Paul's getting at here. He says that when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. When the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. And what Paul's saying here is that that is how God manifests his wrath. That sin is the evidence of God's wrath. That he abandons us to the very wrong things, the wrong desires that we most long for. And Paul gives you a couple of concrete examples in, that, in this passage of, of what that can be like. And let me just go over those really quick. Um, I'm going to look at this first one here in uh, verses 24 through 28. So in verses 24 through 28, this is where he says, I just lost my spot here. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. You may have noticed that so far, all of what has been said in the previous verses all have to do with what you might call like our vertical relationship to God. But now in these verses, we find out that, that, that sin affects not just our vertical relationships to God, but it affects our horizontal relationships with other people. And the, one, the, the kind of the chief example that Paul uses of that has to do with sexual morality. Now, I think the reason that he, he highlights this one is not necessarily because he's saying that, that sexual immorality is worse than other sins, but I think it's because it typifies what this whole passage is about. I mean, this whole passage is about how we've traded the authentic for the counterfeit. And there's no better example of that than, than the beautiful gift of our bodies. I mean, think about what the body is meant to be. I mean, if you know the passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says that our bodies are meant to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, I mean, just think about that. There, there's a, a famous theologian, a guy named Irenaeus, who said, the glory of God is man most fully alive. And man most fully alive looks like us, our bodies, being the dwelling place of God by his spirit. I mean, what greater honor could God have given humanity than that? 
and our bodies are the, are the epicenter of that. I mean, or even think about just human sexuality. I mean, God had that idea. That was his idea. It's a good thing. Marriage and sex, you know, they're meant to picture God's great love for his church. You know, it wasn't that, you know, God invented marriage and sex, and then he said, you know what, like, actually, I think I'll kind of design this story that kind of, you know, sort of is reminiscent of that, where there's this bride and this church, and, 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 and my son lays down his life for, 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 for them, and no, it's the other way around. <laughs> like, God had it in his mind from the, the beginning of creation the whole universe would revolve around his son, around his son laying down his life for a people that he purchased for himself, his bride. And then he said, you know what? I'll take a husband and a wife, marriage and sex, and I'll make it a picture that points to that. That's what it points to. That's what it's about. And so marriage and sex, they're created primarily as a means to show forth the incredible relationship of love that God wants to have with his people. And the tragic thing about sin the tragic thing about our desires and, and, and the natural things that we are drawn to is that it completely does away with the beautiful picture that God had intended. And man, like, for those of you who know this, I just want to say that, that the story obviously doesn't end there. That, that God provides redemption for any kind of past that we have. But Paul's point is that without God... Our lives go off the rails, and this is one example of that. And next week, um, we'll look a little bit more at the, the hot potato in the passage, the, the subject of homosexuality. And then finally, he gives another concrete example. So the first thing has to do with, with our bodies, with sexual immorality. And the second thing has to do with a depraved lifestyle. So in verse 28, he says, Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. He goes through a big, big, long list. I mean, it's things big and small. He includes things in there like murder, all the way down to disobeying your parents. I mean, oh my gosh, like <laughs> every single person on the planet, I'm sure, has been guilty of that. And the point is not only that when we allow our, our, ourselves to be Lord of our own lives, that this is the result, you know, all of this, this, tragedy, all of this train wreck of, of depravity and sin. But I think the reason that this list goes on for so long is that Paul wants to be sure that every single one of us can find ourselves in this list. Every single one of us can. I mean, if you go through that list slowly, there's, there's no human being that is, is, can, can avoid seeing themselves in all of these things. And his point is that all of us, every single one of us, have this heart. No one is immune. No one is exempt. All of us need Christ. And that's uh, just a segue into this last, last little part, which is, you know, what, what, where do we go with this? Um, we've looked at why God reveals his wrath. We've looked at how God reveals his wrath. The question is, you know, how do we escape this? Because the problem, of course, is that if this is the state of our hearts, we, you, you realize that we're dealing with an addictive cycle. I mean, the cycle starts out in denial, and then it leads to idolatry because we turn to other things. And then the idolatry only leads to a greater denial because we're trying to hold on so desperately to all the things that we think are actually going to satisfy that never will. So it leads to greater denial, which leads to greater idolatry, which leads to, it's a vicious cycle. It's an addiction. I mean, idolatry is simply like, the, you know, the, the biblical version of what we think about psychologically today is, is addiction. It's an addiction. And that's scary. Denial is scary. It's scary for non-Christians. It's scary for Christians. 
You know, some of you might know the hymn Amazing Grace. The guy who wrote that hymn was a guy named John Newton. And John Newton had this amazing testimony. He was a slave trader. And he, and he had this conversion where he you know, met Jesus and his life was changed. And you read his journals from after that time. And for you know, the first number of years, he's, he's, he's like reading his Bible. He's, he's doing all these amazing, amazing things. He's, he's realizing the grace of God. But he's still a slave trader. He's literally, you know, like reading his Bible while there's a slaves beneath his feet on the deck of the ship that he's the captain of. And he saw no contradiction. It took him nine years of being a radical born-again believer to recognize the evil and the wrong of what he was doing. I mean, that is how insidious sin is. It pulls the wool over our eyes and it leads to denial. So how do we escape? How do we escape? And this passage um, really doesn't quite get there yet. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get there soon, but let me just give you a foreshadowing and say that the whole point about this passage is that it points entirely to Jesus. When the courtroom doors fling open in chapter 3, verse 21, and Jesus runs in and says, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed, a righteousness that is apart from law. What he means is that when humanity was completely lost, when humanity was completely broken, when there was nothing that we can do, when all of our righteous deeds were like filthy rags, God stepped in and he took the penalty for us. Which is why the very last thing to say about this passage is, is not just how God showed his wrath, not just why he showed his wrath, but when he showed his wrath. I mean, this passage says that the wrath of God is being revealed, that the that the, 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 the very sin that we're in bondage to is evidence of God's anger against the way that we've suppressed and denied the truth. But there was another, another episode where God revealed his wrath, and that was at Calvary. We're on the cross. All of the things that, that are mentioned in this passage, all of the, the brokenness, all of the consequences for what we've done were laid on Jesus. You know, God's point, God's purpose is to do whatever he can to rescue us from the consequences of what we've done. And in Jesus, he did it. And on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And he meant it because he had entirely exhausted the wrath of God for sin. And that's what breaks the cycle of idolatry because we finally have our eyes open to someone who is worthy of our worship, who will never, ever fail us. And he's the one who, who, who saves us from guilt, who heals us from shame, who heals us from brokenness. It's all about him. But as we just kind of conclude here, I do just want to encourage you to not pass over the gravity of this passage because the gospel only becomes good news when you truly grasp the bad news. I mean, if someone were to knock on your door tomorrow and they said, I paid your debt, I mean, you'd probably wonder, you know, what are you talking about? What debt do you mean? Do you mean like my $50 cell phone bill? Or what if they meant your $500,000 mortgage? To know the gravity of the debt that's been paid totally changes your response. You know, in the first response, you might, like, give them a handshake. The next response, you'd probably, like, offer to serve them for the rest of your life. You have to know the cost. You have to know the price. You have to know what Jesus has saved us from in order to grasp the gravity of the gospel. And that's what this passage is about. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to move into small groups.
Lord, thank you that this passage is um, just so straightforward um, and just so full of truth. Lord, I just pray that you would persuade us and convict us of um, who we really are in ourselves. Convict us of our need for you, Lord. And help us look to you as the only, only one um, who can save us from ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.